Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. May you find in the garden of spirituality a flower whose fragrances suit you. Accord. Yes, so we're going to talk about enlightenment. What do we mean when we say enlightenment or what is meant by this word? Words like enlightenment, perfection, attainment, um, to use the more traditional terms, Brahma Jnana, knowledge of God, Atma Bodha, realization of self, um, or Buddhahood, all these states or words or attainments all point to a similar reality. They're all talking about a similar thing. And so today we're going to explore what that thing is. Um, and we're going to do it by looking at various ways that it has been described in various traditions. There will be some level of abstraction involved in today's discussion. So I want to suggest before we go any further that we just refresh our concept of Indian epistemology. So epistemology is the question of how do we know what we know? So if someone is going to talk to you about a state, or propose a way of being, your natural first question should be, well, mate, how do you know? What ways are you achieving this knowledge? You know, so epistemology is the question of how we know what we know. So traditionally in Indian spiritual traditions, scripture gives us three ways to verify pramana or right knowledge. The first is direct experience. So yoga values personal, subjective, direct experience of spiritual reality above all things. So it's not enough to recognize that God exists or enlightenment is a thing. It's the goal of every spiritual aspirant to recognize this in the immediacy of their own awareness. So direct experience is often the most important. Next comes the advice or um, the leadership of a guru. So a guru is your own personal spiritual teacher, someone who deals with you on a personal level and is often further along the path, if not all the way done with the path, and is able to give you the spiritual nourishment that you yourself need at different times of your journey. Um, the guru, as we discussed many times before, is not a teacher. The teacher gives you concepts. The teacher gives you knowledge. The guru's form of teaching is through his or her or their own being. So the guru broadcasts to you a vibratory frequency. It's, it's a much subtler means of instruction than just teaching. In fact, there is a story of the great god of yoga, Shiva, giving the teaching of yoga to a group of sages. This Shiva appears in the form of Dakshina Murthy, who teaches completely silently. You know, so all the sages sit around and he just sits. They're all sitting in silence and after a while they nod and get up and walk off. So the guru is like that. But to protect you against the idiosyncrasies of a guru, the final way to verify knowledge is scriptural testimony, which means Whatever you experience directly must be corroborated, not just with the words and instruction of a guru, but also with the peer review of the spiritual community as a whole. So scriptural testimony means your realization must check out with scripture or not just 
scripture in terms of the Upanishads and Vedas, but the scripture of all religions. So it must be true in all traditions for it to be true. I want to offer um, one more thing. And in the Yoga Sutra, this is also offered and it's called inference, but I want to call it reason. So this is my fourth kind of uh, epistemological standard. You must apply the crucible of reason to all three of the aforementioned ways of knowing. This is because when you experience something directly and you're telling your friend about what you experienced, what you're doing is you're not actually talking about your experience. You're talking about your interpretation of that experience. Any event, experiential event, is naturally devoid of concepts. It's an immediate um, interaction with reality. When you start to talk about it, or when you, I don't even want to say talk about it, when you start to think about it, when you start to write in your journal at night to reflect what that experience meant to you, naturally you're not any longer interacting with the experience, you're interacting with your interpretations of experience. In this sense, direct experience can often lead you astray. You know, it, it is the best way of knowing, but sometimes we're not sure what to make of our experiences. And I'm sure many of you in these discussions have heard something in these talks or in your own exploration of sutra that suddenly clicked with something that you experienced and allowed you to interpret it in a different way. So the data that you get from your personal firsthand experience must be put in the crucible of reason. Secondly, anything a guru or a piece of scripture tells you must be put and burnt in the crucible of reason. It must stand up to your own innate sense of logic and reasoning. So there are many spiritual teachers that will attempt to put out your eyes of reason. And I just want to say that no more harmful attitude can be taken in the world of spirit than to believe things on faith. Um, Shraddha or faith is an important component in spiritual practice, but it's a very different kind of faith that the yogic uh, tradition is talking about. We must always avoid believing in things, you know, because beliefs are concepts. They are ultimately chitta vrittis, mind stuff. And the, the problem with belief is that at the very best, it can be wishful thinking. Since we all feel an innate need to experience meaning, or a fulfilled life. And so we can use a belief like, oh, when we die, we go to heaven. Or uh, Buddhahood exists. Or we are all divine in our core. These are all beliefs. And even though they might be, you know, pointing to a reality, they are still not the reality themselves. So the concept of nirvana, the concept of atma bodha or a Buddhahood are still just concepts. And so when we cling on to them, we become very desperate because we cannot, you know, it says in the Bible, man does not live by bread alone. We can amend that and say, man and women do not live by concepts alone. Concepts will never give us the fulfillment that, that we seek through the reality pointed to by those concepts. So the holders of beliefs can start to become particularly desperate. And this is what leads to secretarianism, religious bigotry. People are willing to live and die for beliefs because of that desperation that beliefs don't quite do it for them. You know, so I'm noticing now in our spiritual community, a loss of philosophical fiber and intellectual strength. There is too many glib 
um, citations of scientific studies. We've never read the papers. We don't really know what the data means, but we're very happy to talk about the science if it validates some wishful thinking belief that we have. You know, we're looking for scientific validation. We're looking to buy into any new age remedy that makes us feel nice. But this is dangerous because all we're doing is we're purchasing beliefs in the marketplace of ideas. And so we must put all of those beliefs into the oven of reason. And so I really applaud um, all of you here for engaging in a rigorous philosophical kind of analysis of the stuff that's being put in front of us. So I welcome debate. Please stop me at any point. If it's not true for you, then it's not true at all. And please put it to the test, you know, question the material that I will present today because we're going to get into some pretty, you know, weird places. One last note though. This is a spiritual philosophy. The reason it's called a spiritual philosophy is because ultimately its premises cannot be proved by evidence. That's the catch. That's the catch 21. And, you know, we use logical structure. So a logical structure has premises and it has a conclusion. If the premises are true, the conclusion is sound. But the premises and conclusion might still make a valid argument. It might still be logically tight, but the, not sound. So philosophically speaking, the logic should inhere, yet the premises cannot be proved. You know, the premises can only be proved by you in your own direct spiritual experience. So that's the beauty of this whole game. And the reason being is what we're talking about is pure awareness, which presupposes all science, not the other way around, you know? Um, and that's why it's difficult to do science on ourselves. You know, it's difficult to make an object out of the subject, which is ultimately what awareness is. The pure witness, the pure subject, the experiencer, you know? So that's kind of our catch 21. So with that in mind, let's dive in as to what this whole enlightenment business is about. What is the goal of spiritual practice? And, you know, as you've probably realized, we're all in it for different reasons. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you have people coming to spirituality because they seek fame and power through becoming an excellent yoga teacher who poses wonderful Pinchamayurasana poses on Instagram or cult leaders leading um, retreats in Oregon. You know, um, some of us are here because we like the aesthetic. Some of us are naturally drawn to the ethical, philosophical and artistic beauty that's inherent in these traditions. So we're aesthetic philosophers. We are in love with the iconography, the sculptures, the temples, the picture of the Buddha with his noble and serene continence, so majestic, so aristocratic, it stirs the soul. You know, so some of us are drawn here because of the beauty. Some of us are drawn here because of philosophy. You know, we started studying Carl Jung. We became very interested in psychology. We found our way to Carl Jung's red book. We got excited about his, you know, interaction with Eastern cultures. And eventually we became yogis, Buddhist, whatever. So some of us were brought here through the pursuit of truth. In so many ways, we've all come. And we all want something different out of this. Ultimately, though, the best thing this whole tradition has to offer you is what we're going to talk about today, which is Atma Bodha, Brahma Jnana, enlightenment, attainment, or perfection. So it makes sense to ask what this is. 
And I hope to answer this question, or at least began to shed some light on this question by approaching it um, through the answers of different traditions. You know, maybe starting with the Buddha. Um, I want to offer you, though, before we go into the Buddha, a little bit of a creation myth. Um, the story, if you will, of why things have come into being. Purely poetic story. So give me some poetic license here to kind of put the philosophical rigor aside and just engage in this little imaginative speculation, if you will. So imagine, if you will, um, a being. This being is pure awareness, meaning it has no other attributes except this glorious ability to be aware. And think about that. You know, it's not aware of any particular thing. It's awareness unattached to any object of awareness. And this alone might stretch the imagination, but some of you who have been sitting and meditating and doing a lot of asana and shavasana have a glimpse as to what this pure, unattached awareness might be like. So imagine, if you will, there is such an awareness um, that exists before a creation of a world, before the existence of any objects for it to be aware of. This pure awareness um, in the Indian tradition is called Satchit Ananda, which means being consciousness bliss. So we ask you just to suspend disbelief and accept that this pure awareness has three intrinsic properties, properties that you yourself can glimpse in meditation. The first is that it is. It seems like a no-brainer since I started my story saying there is. <laughs> but the isness of this thing is important. It's sat, meaning true being. Satya is the word for truth. So true being. Next, it's chit, meaning it is not made of matter. It's not made of energy. It's made of a substance known as consciousness. I don't like to use the word consciousness. I prefer awareness. Consciousness is a bit too loaded because of some psychological and neurological studies that have come out talking about not this. So we'll say awareness, you know, chit. Next, and this one might be a little hard, um, ananda, it is pure bliss. You know, it's just completely blissed out. And only if you've been meditating a while does this quality, this emotional quality become apparent. It's not quite happiness. It's not quite excitement. It's not quite arousal. It's not quite anything within the, um, you know, gamut of emotional experience. Yet it is all those things. It's kind of hard to describe what Ananda is. But let's just say it's blissful, ecstatic, whatever that word means to you. So now there is this being, right? It's a blissful, ecstatic, pure, conscious being, you know. Now, I'm going to give you another um, axiom or premise that I cannot prove. This being is inherently playful. <laughs> um, this being has what we call itcha, which means a spirit, um, how to translate, urge. This being has this inherent urge to play, you know. And, you know, if you look at your own life, your first urge was this, to play. Even now, Despite all the ways culture is trying to suppress it, your primal urge is to play. You want to have fun. You want to frolic. Seems so trivial, but this is its fundamental urge. It wants to play. Now, what games can a being of pure awareness play with itself when there are no objects to be aware of? 
it's pretty dull. You know, you can imagine it's pretty dull to be blissful, pure awareness, <laughs> especially when you have this urge. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Desire is the name of the game. Kama. Kama, desire, is your god. In Greece, you know, one of the first gods was Eros. Eros actually starts the game of creation. You know, there is Gaia, there is Uranos, but it is Eros who is actually, you know, if you read that Greek myth from Hesiod in his Theogony, you'll hear all about Eros. So this Eros, romantic desire in the Greek, but really deeper than that, it's, it's primal desire, which we call itcha, perhaps a cognate of itch, you know, to, to do something. Examine that desire in your own life. There was an itcha inside you today to attend this circle. There will be an itcha in you to go and practice on your mat and also to, you know, do crack. I don't know. Every desire I'm going to posit now has its root in this base desire. You know, this is the name of the game, desire. So this being experienced desire. And the question is desire for what? What does a pure aware being want? The answer is, is it wants an object of awareness for which through which it can experience itself. Ultimately, a child is happiest when the child is playing with itself. That's the truest form of play. And the child does this through various, you know, sticks in the grass, through action figures or dolls. Like that's the purest state of childishness, uh, childlikeness, sitting with yourself. And in this weird masturbatory experience of pure playfulness, you're just playing in your own imagination, playing. And children create worlds. You know, I've had this wonderful opportunity in my life to teach middle school um, and watching children spin worlds into being. There can be no greater experience for the yogi than this, to watch children do this. Because this is the primal urge to play. So this chit being makes a world out of desire it creates inside of itself and not separate from itself since this is all there is there is no space that is not this so it creates inside of itself um, this world and this world has one name and i'll give you the name for it now the name is kali kali is the name of this world and the word kali comes from the Sanskrit kala, which means time. So time is the first creation of desire. Time is what's responsible for this entire manifested being. And what is manifested being? It's all the things. And by things, I mean the most inclusive sample set you can possibly imagine. I mean every mote of dust in the universe, every planet, every being that exists in all the dimensions, not just this one, every thought that you think, every body that exists. You know, it's, it's a thing in the sense of all things. It's, you know, whatever you want to give to me now, I will call it a thing. There is nothing that you can say in this chat that I would not also call a thing. Even if you say Satchitananda, I call it a thing. You know, because it's still a concept. It's a word. So everything that you can say and think and do and interact with, it's all object. And this world of object is created. But now I must ask you this. If there was only one being, Satchitananda, a being of pure blissful awareness, with what does that being create? 
What material is available to a being in a universe where only it exists? And the answer is, uh, mm, interesting, breath. That's, that's curious. That's curious. Yes, we'll have to unpack that. Um, the answer I was going to suggest was, in a world where only one thing exists, the materials with which universe is created is itself. That's the only thing it can use to make the world. So this Satchitananda blows into existence, and we'll use the breath here, because the Egyptian myths always start with the breath. In the Christian tradition, there is a breath that moved upon the firmament. In some of the Nag Hammadi uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, Christian mystic Gnostic texts, there is a book called Adam and Eve 2, in which they talk about, yeah, there's a sequel <laughs> in the Nag Hammadi library, but it talks about how God breathed into the clay image of Adam existence. So yes, there's this idea of a flowing forth, you know. So the exhalation of Satchitananda is this phenomenal world. Nothing exists that is not this being. God is the only thing that is. It just so happens, though, that this world um, exhibits one other trait. You know, so I want to give you another thing. Earlier I said, okay, this is a being. It's pure being. It's consciousness. It's blissful. And it has an urge to create. Now I'm going to give you one more thing. And I promise I'll stop at five, okay? Just give me the poetic license to suggest five things of this being. <laughs> I cannot prove them. So the first is beingness. The second is consciousness. That's what it's made of. The third is bliss. The fourth is urge, desire. And the fifth, we call this maya. Maya is the power of this, of this being to hide itself. The power of this being to cloak its true nature. Isn't that interesting? Why on earth would such a being want to do that? Okay, think of it this way. The child, in order to enjoy his game, must believe each of his action figures separate from himself in order to really get into the experience of each of those figures. You know, so when I was a kid, I was really into Star Wars. Of course I would be, you know, George Lucas expertly repackaged all the stuff my grandfather was teaching me, which I found to be really dull and boring, you know, in a way that as a child I loved, you know, because there were lightsabers in that one. Um, but sitting at the feet of Shiva, chanting the Siva Puranam, no lightsabers. Four-year-old me did not like it. <laughs> um, and Christina says, it's literally like how we used to play with dolls. Exactly right. So this is it. Like, it's ridiculous how everything is there in the play of a child. All the symphonies of creation is there. So the child's playing, you know, with the dolls, with the action figures. The child, in order to play the game, must forget that the dolls are its own imagination. You know, um, and you watch a child in, in a pastoral country without any dolls, like the child will walk in the woods and it's schizophrenic. The child will just invent characters and play with the characters. But each of those characters are given independent reality. So in order to really get into the game, God, which is Satchitananda, must forget its totality in order to assume its uh, particularness. So God must forget that it is God and become the rock, become the Anisha, become the Nish. But it does this out of love, 
out of a desire to play, you know, but here's the, here's the tragedy, right? Here's what happened in the broad scheme of things. This is a blip in the moment of consciousness. It's just a little, little misunderstanding, you know, it's innocent mistake, but here's what happened out of self-love. You identified with one particular being, call it what you will, call it a Madeline, call it a Claire. You identified with one particular being and you did so out of pure love. I mean, think of this staggering truth. This infinite being that can create out of itself anything chose to identify and manifest as a Madeline. How profound is a Madeline that an infinite being wanted to be that? Of all the possibilities, this, you know, beautiful. Can you feel that love, that love for each rock that you chose? I mean, nothing is an accident. Each of these rocks you spun out of your own imaginative capacity. And the child loves the child's figures, action figures, you know. So in this tremendous act of self-love, you fell into the spell of believing the part was the whole. That was the only mistake. I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't say a mistake. It's necessary. It's par for the course, you know. It's a necessary step in reasoning. So, This moment involves you identifying with this one, and that means negating all that is not this one. So what this means is you take your mind, your body, your personality, and your life to be independently real. And therein lies the rub, you know? So now that you've taken your mind, body, personality to be independently real, here's your dilemma. Nothing satisfies you. (laughs) Nothing's going to do it. Eventually, you will realize no experience you can have, to borrow Ram Dass's words, no experience you can have through the senses, through your mind, and through your ego will ever be enough. And some of us need to really take a while to learn this lesson. We must first conquer the whole world. We have to Julius Caesar our way into the ultimate form of sense gratification, egoic power gratification. We need to have it all only to realize it was never enough. You know, some of us realize this a little more quickly. We realize by inference that X amount of money is not making me happy when I thought it would. So I suppose 10X won't. And some people don't get there. You know, some people in their ability to reason are not able to extrapolate. They go X amount of money didn't quite do it. Ah, but 5X will. Okay, 5X didn't do it. Damn. 10X. No, wait. It's not just money. I need some other stuff too. Sex. Let's do that. Um, Fame. Let's do that. So there is certain things that you pursue. And we think that by increasing your quantity, we find some kind of fulfillment. Religious dogma is no different. Beliefs are just like money. You know, we're using them to desperately fill this, this thing, this sense of incompleteness, which I want to attribute to being the whole, but thinking yourself the part. So that's your primal suffering. Your, what we call an angst in the French existentialist philosophy, this primal um, existential dread or suffering of being is in yoga a problem of identity, of identification. And how beautiful, what an innocent mistake. It is out of love and desire that you committed this mistake. Uh, At this point, the Christian mystics in the room should 
feel a stirring in the soul when the Bible uses language like, it is out of love that Jesus suffers for you. Hmm? Who is this Jesus? None other than yourself. This kingdom of heaven that is within, you decided to crucify yourself on the four planes of matter, fire, earth, air, and water. You decided to take an incarnation and assume a particularity out of love. And through that love, you suffer. And it's a very beautiful kind of suffering because ultimately, all your suffering is functional. All your suffering, sooner or later, will bring you to um, your unique spiritual search. And you do that through art. You do that through any means, you know, but eventually it makes you a philosopher, you know. So whether you started off a rhinoceros, you end a philosopher, a philosopher rhino, if you will. I say rhino because the Buddha had a beautiful poem where he talked about wandering the world aloof and alone like a rhinoceros, being unattached to all things. I love this, you know, a rhinoceros, like what a great, like a Dada poem, you know, be a rhinoceros. That's our theme for the day. In fact, let's just talk about rhinoceroses for the next couple of, no, I'm kidding. So this is your existential dread, Yes. Now, what is this enlightenment then, this Atma Bodha? The, the way to describe enlightenment differs from different traditions. So if we take, for instance, the Buddha, great Indian um, sage from Northwestern India, the Buddha, his question was, how do we end suffering? So the Buddha suddenly became aware that this suffering is inherent in life, that you suffer and I'm sorry for those of you who've heard me say this a million times. I love the Buddha. I cannot stop speaking about him. I've fallen in love with his dizzying philosophy. The dizzying heights of his philosophy, as Vivekananda said. Anyway, so his predicament for you is if you don't get what you want, you suffer. If you get what you want, you suffer. Because then you stand to lose it, you know. The Buddha described suffering on three levels. The suffering of suffering, which is, you know, sickness, boredom, uh, tragedy, these are all, you know, obvious forms of suffering. And for those obvious forms of suffering, there are obvious cures. So if you're bored, watch TV, you know, Game of Thrones, eight seasons, you're fine. You get bored of that, get a new, you know, um, if you're sick, there's medicine. So for the mundane forms of suffering, there is cures. But the second level of suffering, the Buddha called this the suffering of change. Um, And so the Buddha looked around and he saw that everywhere was impermanence. So even if you got what you wanted, like right now, you can ask yourself, what do you most want out of life? And if you say anything that is not enlightenment, you're asking for disappointment. And that's fine. You know, that's fine. That's fine. Eventually, um, you'll come to want the only thing worth wanting, except to say that everything that you wanted before was equally worth wanting because it was part of your journey to wanting the one want-worthy thing, you know? So this is a philosophy of intense inclusion. Nothing is wrong. Because by what standard can we just it, uh, uh, um, judge it? There is only, after all, one thing. And for morality to work, you need two things. You need a good and an evil. But we have one thing beyond all good and evil. You know, I love this phrase. A pundit said it. He said, um, A lot of people ask for the purpose of Leela, you know, the purpose of existence or responsibility. And this pundit said, bah, responsibility and purpose are social constructions. God is beyond such childish ideas. (laughs) 
Now, this idea that, you know, um, the wanting of things, when you get it, because of the nature of change, either you lose it or you yourself change and no longer want it. How often has this happened when you get what you want? You're like, ah, I wanted it, but not anymore. You know, so weird. So that was his second layer of suffering, the suffering of impermanence. His third layer was the suffering of what he called anatman, which was the suffering of identifying yourself with a non-existent thing, meaning the mind, body, and ego. So the Buddha's realization was that what it means to be real means to be unchanging, you know. And think of this, the reason you call your dreams unreal is because they're always changing, you know. So you go to sleep tonight and you're a Maharani, you know, a Persian Maharani. And tomorrow night, you're a rhinoceros. The night after that, you're traveling in a circus troops in France. The night after that, you're a rhinoceros again. You know, I don't know, but there's some kind of fluctuating in your dreams that causes you to discard it as real because it's too fluctuating. Your life seems a little more real because every time you wake up, you spawn into the same MMORPG character you had yesterday. You know, so you come back in your stats. You've got your charisma level. You roll the die. You got this much strength. You're that. You know, so you're playing this character in the Dota of your life and you ascribe more reality to Jagrat, to waking, because of this consistency. But if you saw in this waking state, its inconsistency, surely the Jagrat appears to you as Swapna, meaning surely the waking appears to you as a dream. If such is the case, like the Buddha realized, there is no reality in the mind, body, or self. He said famously, Shunyam, Shunyam, sorry, Shun... Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam shunyam, void, void, all is void. Because anityam, anityam, sarvam anityam, changing, changing, all is changing. So the Buddha equates change with an impermanence with unreality. That was what the Buddha said your you know, your core suffering was. Your identification with that which isn't there. It's like a dog chasing its own tail. That's why there's such pain in life, you know. Now, what was the Buddha's real, I mean, you know, his fourfold noble truth. He tells you suffering is a thing. All life is suffering, he says. Um, but then he says, desire is the root of suffering. In this sense, he's saying, because everything is impermanent, your clinging to things, expecting them to be permanent, is what's causing you to suffer. So for the Buddha, what it means to achieve enlightenment is to end suffering. That was it. That was the only thing the Buddha wanted to do. He defined nirvana, not in Atma, Bodha, Brahma, Jnana, all those terms that came before him, earlier, like preceded him, you know, because he saw in that dogma. The Buddha saw in terms like Atma, Bodha from the Upanishads or Brahma, Jnana, he saw mental edifices that Vedic society had been worshipping for years that wasn't serving to take the yogis beyond their concepts. So he said, in order to do away with concepts, let's call it nirvana, blowing out. You know, ending. What are you ending? Your identification with a part. This is what enlightenment is. But is this the end? And you know, I, I um, had the wonderful fortune of 
my acquaintance is a profound mathematician and he started to dabble in Buddhist philosophy. He took a bunch of classes at college and I'll never forget the most wonderful dinner conversation. He, he said, so does that mean when I achieve nirvana, I disappear from the matrix? I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Once you wake up from the dream, the dream dissipates and not quite. So it's not like once you achieve nirvana, this blowing out, you just disappear. It's not quite that um, because the mind and body continue, you know? So it's almost like the lights are on, but nobody's home. So you can think of it that way. You know, if you find nirvana before your physical body expires, your body will continue and your mind will continue funnily enough. (laughs) It will just live out its karmas, but you are not there anymore. You know, you're kind of watching it backstage. Now, the Buddha famously said, nirvana is not the end, it is the beginning. You know, that's the beautiful thing. So for the Buddha, this blowing out was actually a turning on. When you blew out what was not there, you awakened to what was there. And of course, the Buddha, I mean, his characteristic disposition was intense logic, rigorous analytical philosophy, which I'm trying to make my message here in America, you know, uncompromising intellect in order to prevent religious fanatic religiosity or sentimentalism, you know. But that was his, his thing. He was like, he was a skeptic. He was a hardcore skeptic. Don't accept any entities um, that people posit to you unless you yourself find them. And what he found was what he called shunyam void. So a Buddhist is interested in this void, this non-existence, which isn't in existence, by the way. So void for the Buddhist is not a negation of being. It's a kind of being that is different from um, objective reality. You know, see, the way he described it was void. What is the Buddha's void? Let's just call it Satchitananda. It's real. It's a Sat. Chit. He realized it in his consciousness. It's a conscious thing. And it was blissful. It showed on his face. He was radiant. We call it the Buddha smile. You know, He was like a baby in his pure relaxation. So here's what we've done. I know I've done something really glib. And if there are any Buddhist scholars here, I'm going to get scolded for this. But there is a key difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. And that's this called Anatma theory. In Hinduism or Upanishadic Vedanta, we say um, that void, it's not a void. It's a thing. It's called Satchitananda. It's called Atman. It's called Brahman. Um, and in the dualistic schools of Hinduism, like Vaishnavism or Vaishnava faiths, this being like is up there. It's like outside of you, you know, Um, and you relate to it as a devotee. Um, In Buddhism, the Buddha says, what nonsense. This Atma is not in you. Neither is it outside of you. It's not at all. It doesn't exist anywhere. So let's just call it Shunya, void. Now the Vedantist or the non-dualist And you'll remember some of these terms from previous lectures. If they mean nothing, let them just... Um, But a non-dualist says, yes, I agree with you. The Buddha is right. This thing doesn't exist outside of your mind or body. Neither does it exist in your mind and body. It is the very reality out of which mind and body and concepts arise. So the Buddhist concept of enlightenment is to know what you are not and therefore understand what you are. The Hindu concept of enlightenment is 
precisely the same method. It's called neti neti. And neti neti means not this, not that. When you proceed with a rigorous form of philosophical inquiry, you start to separate yourself from identifications. You thought yourself to be X, but through philosophical analysis, you realized you weren't X. And after a while, you throw off all identification with thingness and you become pure awareness. Plato uh, talks about Socrates. Socrates did the same thing. Socrates, who, by the way, had a version of the chakra theory that appears in Plato's works. Um, it's the seven planets, the seven celestial rungs on the ladder that a soul must pass through on its way down to earth. It's funny, a lot of people think the chakras originated in India. No, they did not. They emerged as a consequence of a certain spiritual movement around the world, you know, independently. You know. Um, another important thing to take away is that none of this philosophy is Indian. You know, it, it, it's universal. It's archetypical. And so Socrates would engage in a similar method of neti neti. He would say, not this, not that. Socrates even uh, went so far as to say he knows nothing, right? His whole method was reductio ad absurdum, which was to philosophically checkmate all of his opponents into admitting um, that they knew nothing or that their concepts were self-defeating. In Zen, and I'll type this here, it's called a koan. Kant calls this a Kantian antimony. Oh, antimony, which is a phenomena of thinking